Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, talking the last stage of the Vuelta Espana at the last Grand Tour of 2021. I'm joined by the winner of the 1988 Vuelta Espana, <laughs> um, Sean Kelly. Thank you, Sean, for Evening. coming in. And Orla Shinui. Who's Never won anything, but I'm here. <laughs> no, but, uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Today, what did you make of today's stage, Sean? Primoz Rodlich, fourth stage win, third time he's won the Vuelta Espana. The first man to do that since Tony Rominger. And I think only the third man in history to win three Vuelta Espanas. He's had a remarkable season, hasn't he? Yes, he's had a super uh, Vuelta. Of course, uh, disappointing in the Tour of France. He put a lot of work into that, uh, crashing out at the end of the uh, first week. But he's come back here and uh, he's been so dominant. You know, there was never a moment where we see him getting into difficulty. The team did a super job around him. There were always, you know, a number of riders on the vital stages when they need to be so. Um, tactically, they rode just a perfect race and uh, he won comfortably. And again, today, the time trial, you could see that hunger was there. He wanted to win another stage. Mm. When you think he rode Liège best on Liège, he didn't race till the Tour de France. I think he did 10 days of the Tour de France before he pulled out. The Tokyo Olympic Games, and then he's come back into to the Grand Tour and produced the form that we hope to see at the Tour de France. But it's quite remarkable how he maintains his condition all through the season, isn't it? Yes, well, that was uh, something that I was disappointed in the Tour of France, of course, because uh, he changed his programme uh, totally this year after Liège, he had uh, all that time off. And it was going to be an interesting one to see how he would uh, fare out in the tour. And he was riding very good in the first week. He was, you know, there not losing anything. And I think uh, for the end of the tour, he would have been very performant. And it was a new sort of uh, strategy, a new tactic that uh, Jumbo Visma were using. So we didn't get the opportunity to see that. And with the crash, disappointment to see him going out. But he came back, you know, with a bang at the Olympics. And he's continued on in that bang in the Vuelta, the way he's ridden this race. And, yeah, it's going to be interesting now where he goes from here next year, his programme, what race he will ride. And I'm looking forward to seeing him, you know, back in the Tour at his best again. Mm. And we saw a very different Primoz Rodlich this <laughs> Vuelta, didn't we? He sort of um, endeared us a little bit more, hasn't he, with his interviews and... Even with his kid at the end there on the podium, he, he seems a lot more relaxed now about his status, doesn't he? I was melting with his little boy in the podium at the end. Um, yeah, he does. And actually, it seems almost funny to say because I feel like he's been coming out of himself a little bit over the last couple of years anyway. Certainly compared to, we were on the road, weren't we, for the Vuelta two years ago when he won his first and it was really difficult to get very much out of him. Sean Kelly reckons that's because I was the one with a microphone in his face. I disagree. Um, but he was quite... Um, he had a very good game face, you know, a poker face. He didn't really let, let his emotions out. That's changed and definitely at this Vuelta more than ever. And I've commented on it a few times but just because I was really shocked by it the first time. Hearing him giggle, he's got quite a high-pitched giggle. Yeah. And I've never heard him really even laugh very much before. Um, and that, you know, given the disappointment of the Tour de France, obviously he has won the Olympics since then. But it shows just how quickly he turns things around. And Sean, you're saying how you're obviously disappointed that he crashes out of the Tour de France. But for me, that's what makes Primoz Roglic Primoz Roglic. You know, it's the fact that I love that he brings me on a roller coaster every single race. And I never know whether he's going to soar to the highest of heights or he's going to come crashing to the ground. And when he does come crashing, my heart breaks for him. And he incites a different emotion for me than Tadej Pogacar. I find that Pogacar is just such a machine. He's so reliable. Whereas Primoz Roglic brings you into the soap opera and the drama. And I love that about him. There's an element of green about him, isn't there? Mm, we saw him which is remarkable. Paris early in the year, didn't we? On the last stage through crashing, didn't we? 
Um, yes, we did. We see that. The uh, Dauphiné last year, of course, he was leading the race when he crashed and we saw him crash in this race. We saw him with the confidence to, to give the jersey away and take mm. it back. But four stage wins and the GC, it's remarkable, I think, what the, you know, he's, that, that element of green and naivety about him almost comes across in these interviews mm. as well, as well as the seriously focused, determined athlete who manages to maintain his form all year. But um, I think he's got to be one of the favourites now for the World Time Trial Championship in a few weeks' time. Yes, I think he's going to be very much up there. You know, anybody that can finish, um, you know, the end of a three-week race like he's been doing uh, today, we see there in the time trial, like he was excellent again. And you know, that form is not going to leave suddenly. And uh, yeah, I think for the uh, for the world, he's definitely going to be there. And uh, yeah, it's he's a rider that yeah, you know, he can be in real dominant form. Uh, but there's always that little bit of, you know, nervousness about it there in the race. And we see it in this race when he went to the attack there on one of the climbs and starting going down the descent and taking risk. You were I, horrified by that, Sean. Well, I was scared and yeah, probably horrified is, uh, is part of it as well. And, you know, well, now you know how we felt when we watched you to come down the, <laughs> down the Poggio in 92, chasing well, after Argentina. Yes, well, the Poggio is, you know, it's just a one day race. If it go wrong, it's just one day. But in a big two... But when you're Sean Kelly, you know that's not going to go wrong. <laughs> well, when it goes wrong in a stage race, of course then you know it's uh, it's it's a disaster and you know we see the way he was taking risks there but that's the kind of guy he is and as Orla say you know he just brings that to racing and that's great because he's not this you know controlled calculated rider uh, with his interviews but also on his bike yeah I'm interested Bradley in something that you said on the sofa actually you said that you think he's a better athlete he's a better competitor than Tadej Pogacar why we didn't really get get into that as we never yeah really did well there's the age gap of course so mm. they're not you can't compare them like for like um, and they've had different entries into the sport whereas and Tadej I mean I travelled out with them to Tokyo they're on the plane together Tadej was drinking apple juice out of a beaker <laughs> on the plane <laughs> he, he wasn't though actually was he he was oh I thought and you Primoz would, had a small a glass joke. of wine oh, yeah oh, and he really? had a kids meal Tadej <laughs> not quite <laughs> no, but there's a, there's a youthfulness and a, and a, a sort of naivety about Tade. Not naivety in a, in a, in a, in a condescending way. Just um, he's, still he's a, a genius. Really. You know, he's a, he's a he's a he's a genius on the bike. You know, he's he's a phenomenon. He takes you back to like a young Le Monde, young Eddie Merckx. You know those guys that that come to light at 21 years of age, and that was I was uh, when I was talking about the disappointment for me in the Tour of France because the way he prepared, mm. you know, with the different strategy, the different uh, method of training for the Tour, I was really interested to see how he could fail out against mm. Podjica because you know I believe that he could have you know give Podjica a real Definitely. challenge in the Tour of France yeah. this year because he. We always talked about the third week, he weakens and he struggles a bit. But the way he you know, rested up, no racing for a long, long time before the Tour, I think he would have been very performant in the final week of the Tour of France. Yeah, I think it gave us a false impression, the time gaps, didn't it? Because um, there was no one on that level, really. Mm, and, exactly. and, and he was the only one, really, to that we thought would be up there. But, um, yeah, on, just on that, I think that he's, um, he's the most consistent performer. Um, and Tade, we've seen, he has moments of genius, um, as we saw this year, Liège, Bastogne, Liège, and of course the Tour de France. But Tade, you know, he's he's now sort of getting overawed, not not himself, but by being pulled left and right from winning the Tour de France as, as a superstar and going to the Olympics, of course, and getting a medal. He's a superstar in Slovenia, as is Primoz Rodlic. But um, Primoz come back from winning a gold medal at the Olympic Games, and he's now managed to refocus straight. He, he's his sole priority is back to performing and not being on talk shows and being fated as an Olympic champion. So it's the mindset that's the difference between the two. Tade, you'll just you'll see a, a display of genius, of sort of youthful exuberance, 
whereas Primoz just plows along. And whatever he does, even when he wins like he won the other day on the mountaintop, it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't come with a huge amount of entertainment in terms of his after, you know, his after interviews after the stage. Does in the racing though, doesn't it? He's so entertaining to watch. I think racing. Well, I just think his whole, his whole package isn't, and is not, a, it's not got star quality, if that makes sense. Mm. Whereas Tade's got star quality. Mm. You know, where, when he was warming up for the time throughout the tour last year with headphones on. And I did a piece on, on the screen saying that this is the difference between the two. And I think Primoz looks way more focused than he's going to deliver today. And I was completely wrong. <laughs> and I think there's that star sort of almost like a rock star quality about Tade and the way he performs and the way he wins. Much like Kia Pucci used to have or, you know, these guys. Um, whereas whereas Tad, um, uh, Primoz Rodlich is much more in the, in the style of Miguel Indurain. He's just like a machine and it's very organic and he just wins and wins and he's just a really nice guy but he's not going to get photographed coming out at a nightclub tonight mm. with two birds on each arm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Whereas Tade, you can imagine he would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's that's the entertainment package. That's the difference of the two. Which do you prefer? Which do you prefer to watch? I, I have an appreciation of the athletic performance that he does and what that takes. And so I have a, a great appreciation in watching him do that and perform the way he does. And he's, how unorthodox he looks on the bike as well. Mm. Because it's not that he's a horror to watch on the bike, but he's not aesthetically beautiful on the bike. Whereas Tade... It's like there's an element of Pantani in there. There's an element of Richard Veronk mm. in there. Um, whereas, whereas, whereas Primoz is is almost he looks too Raw, big. He looks almost. too big to be a, mm. a, a climber, pure climber. Yet he's riding the best climbers off his will in the world. He doesn't look like a, a joy to watch on a time trial bike, like you know, sort of Fondrius did or Miguel Indurain. Um, we nearly went the wrong way, didn't we? Today? Yeah. Um, but he's somehow aero enough to produce, you know, the, the, the whole thing. Even when he finished at the tour last year, his helmet was all skew if. Um, and he, but he's got a sort of Sagan-esque physique mm. in terms of that you say you have a good sprint on him. Um, he's not, he doesn't dance out the saddle really well, um, but he's just a machine that seems to be able to do everything. And so he doesn't fit the mould of a type of, Rider. So if he come raw at 27 to the sport from ski jumping, in the same way we talk about Jason um, Jason Osborne, Osborne the other day from rowing, and we were looking at his physique and, you know, he races in lightweight skulls, so he's 69 kilos. You know, in terms of Patrick thinking, right, you'll be a classics rider or a GC rider. You imagine having to do that with Primoz when he can You couldn't have predicted what he would be now. And I think that's, you know, really, you, you could win races certainly like Paranese or the Dauphiné. But to be one of the best Grand Tour riders in the world and climb and time troll like he does, he's got the all-round package, but he doesn't fit the picture of anyone else who's gone before him. And that's what I think makes him unique. Which do you prefer, Sean? Well, I love both of them. And, um, you know, Primus Roglic, the way he races, and, uh, yeah, he's a bit un unpredictable because of, you know, his history, uh, you know, crashes and uh, the way he rides. And uh, we've seen that this year a number of times. We see it in this Vuelta. Um uh, Tadej Pogacar, you know, he's, an, he's a huge talent and uh, he's not a rider, you know, like in the tours where he's calculated, you know, he just depends on his team a lot. We see him in the tour this year, four stages in the Alps, the way he hit everybody and he struck out with 35 or plus kilometres from the finish and just rode everybody off. Uh, and when a rider do that, you know, that is, uh, it's something special and, um, it's great to see and I think uh, it's great for us as commentators and it's great for our viewers. Problem is the two Slovenians in the future, who's going to challenge them in the next couple of years in the big three-week tours? Do you, do you say someone like Tom Pidcock? 
eventually? Well, I think uh, he, Pitcock is a, a future one, but it's going to take two or three years at least to get Pitcock there. And, you know, Pitcock is looking good in this uh, uh, Vuelta, the way he was riding um, penultimate stage uh, yesterday, you know, the way he just rode and prepared the terrain for the Ineos guy. So he proved to himself and that was the thing going into this uh, Vuelta Pitcock had never done anything like a three week race and I think he's going to come out with, with a lot of confidence and knows that he can ride a three week tour now because the way he was performing yesterday and preparing the terrain for the attack from Yates and from Bernal uh, so he's you know, one for the future but that's you know at least three four years down the road Macca's collective cover is made especially for cyclists this is bicycle insurance made for everyone, from Grand Tour winners to cyclists hitting the pedals for the first time. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance with no more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month, meaning you could pay nothing if nobody claims. Your max monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Claims are handled by Lacquer's team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day, with no depreciation or excess. The Bradley Wiggins Show listeners can get their first 30 days free. Head over to www.lacquer.co and sign up using the code Wiggins. George, what was your take then on Movistar and their race? Obviously, I mean, they finished second with Enrico Mas, but up to two days ago, they had two men on the podium. Lopez won the Queen stage, but remarkably yesterday he got off the bike didn't he and we just discussed it at length yesterday and he's very very unpredictable like this hot and cold isn't he we saw a few years ago didn't we all of that um when he hit the spectator at the yeah. Giro and um Vinokurov, you know sort of was quite heavily in arguments with him publicly um but he's gone to Movistar and he still seems to have that looseness about him doesn't he yeah and I don't know if there's anything he can do about that now I think that given the stage that he's come to and and where he's come from, you would think that would all be sort of tamed or polished out of him at this stage. And it's clearly not. I mean, yesterday it sounded like because he missed the break, he was trying to chase on and his team were saying, stop chasing, don't be chasing. So he's he's watching his podium slip away um, and and just automatically thinking, well, fine, then I'll climb off. That's mm. against team orders. And there was, what, a 10-minute conversation apparently with Pat Chivilla, um, the sports director, where he's trying to get him to go back on the bike again. Um, Lopez is on the phone and all sorts. Got back, got back on the bike a little bit, um, but then went AWOL by all accounts. People didn't know where he was at the end of the stage. I don't think there's anything you can do with that now. I think you've just got to, if you're his team manager, you've almost got to just um, get him in the best position that he can be in to perform and just hope things don't go wrong. And I don't think that's a very practical way to manage anyone, you know. Um, well, I think. Uh, do you think that would have happened if Valverde had stayed on the race? Well, I think Valverde, you know, he could have changed the situation quite a lot. Because I'd imagine he would have, you know, pulled him, pulled him aside, wouldn't he, on the road? That yes, day. well, I think uh, if Valverde was there and, you know, that's all something now, you know, we're never going to know. But, uh, you know, when we see in the Giro, of course, when he got taken out by a spectator, that is the normal reaction from a rider. Mm. And it was in the final and there's all that thrilling in the flow. So you can Punching expect... Punching in the face, though. I mean, that was quite extreme, well, wasn't it? Well, you know, riders, you get so aggressive. You would have done that. You get so aggressive. <laughs> and some riders are really aggressive in the mm. final. Uh, and you can't punch anyone in the face, of course. But, you know, you can understand why that happened. But yesterday, he missed the move. It was a tactical error by him not to follow um, uh, uh, Haig. Mm. You know, he should never lift him out of his sight. And then he was chasing and there was no way back. And, you know, to lose it like that, you can't, you cannot do that. Like He's a rider in that team as a leader with Mass. He's been paid to be a leader. You have to be able to, you know, take those moments uh, out on the road when you make these tactical errors. And, you know, the error was 
you know, most of his uh, doing. So you have to just, you know, s- suck it up and get on with it. If it was a crash or, you know, a mechanical or something like that, well, you can understand why he might really get flustrated. But, you know, he made the mistake. You have to just, you know, take it on the chin, get on with it and finish the race. And let's not forget, you know, three weeks of racing. The team have done so much for you. The riders have, you know, looked after you, all the riders that were left in the Mobistar team. You cannot do that as, you know, in the position that he's in or anyone mm. who is a professional bike rider. And we saw a very similar thing with Bahrain Vitoris, didn't we? Of course, yeah. Jack Hague then climbed onto the podium um, through the, the events of what happened with Lopez. But um, he rode an amazing race, didn't he? And, um, of course, Lander, who attacked the other day, he was the GC leader coming into this race. Surely he's coming to the end of his reign now, we thought, wouldn't we, in terms of you've got Jack Hegg now. This is someone to focus on for the next few years. You've got to think he's at the end of um, his chances, at least. You only get so many chances to be a GC yeah. leader in a team and not be able to deliver on it. And that's fine if there's no one else behind you, but there is now. Mm. Jack Hegg is that rider. Gino Mader, of course, as well in that squad, who won the um, the white jersey for the best young rider. Um Land is just so intriguing, I think. I don't know how much um, the whole, I mean, the whole campaign back in the day when he was at Sky and Freeland and all the rest of it and almost giving him uh, carte blanche to be able to go and lead another team as if that was going to be inevitable. And I I almost feel like that that didn't do him any favours, really, Mm. because it was... I mean, you all know much better than I do, but going from being a super domestique to leading a Grand Tour team is completely different. And... I don't think he's ever really, he's never really fulfilled that huge potential, which which sounds maybe a little bit unfair, but I don't know what, what kind of an attitude he's brought with that, you know, and what kind of, um, I hesitate to say this almost, but what kind of entitlement he's brought with that. Because the other day, you know, he dropped out of GC quite a while ago. Jack Higg was their main man for about half the race. And then he goes on the attack, didn't work, climbs off. It's similar in a way to Lopez, whereby you're throwing your toys out of the pram for what? Um, and to go back to what Sean was saying about you're paid to be a leader, that's not just winning a bike race or mm. getting as high up in GC as possible. It's leading the rest of the team and showing them by example. And that's you, your attitude when we'll you're look not at winning. As example. Absolutely. Yeah, absolute yeah. And not just leader to his and team, champion. But to the rest of the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he gave the white jersey away in his interview. The way he spoke whenever mm. he lost that white jersey, if you like, and Gino Mader took it. And he, he, I mean, he's a beautiful soul, mm. as well yeah. as the impression I get from him, saying, This means so much more to Gino Mader than it does for him. I'm so delighted for him. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that he's going to be wearing this into Santiago de Compostela tomorrow. He's always so magnanimous in defeat as well as graceful in victory. And that is the sign of a champion and a leader. And Bernal is head and shoulders above many people for that. What did you make of Ineos' race then with Bernal and Adam Yates? Would you think that was a successful race for them with um, Adam finishing fourth? Or do you think they actually won? We know know they came here for more, but it doesn't live up to the standard, does it, that Ineos have set? No, they definitely came here for more. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the numbers... um, you know, did not work out, and we talked about that uh, at the beginning. This felt that with the riders they had on the start, and uh, Carapaz, of course, we see he was struggling very early, and he was, you know, the one of the main cogs on that wheel for the Ineos. Um, but I can understand why, because he's been going since the Tour of Switzerland, Tour of France, Olympics, so he is getting you know fatigued, and uh, you know. So why the, not bring Rowan mm, Dennis? What we're, was the point in bringing we know Carapaz? He's leaving, I wonder. Well, that that is another question because they could have really done with him, couldn't they? Yes, they could have done it. I mean, if you know, I know why because I spoke to Rowan during the week. Well, if Rowan <laughs> Dennis, did he say? and we well, know we know Rowan Dennis, um, uh, Dennis, the way he can ride, we see in the Giro last year when he gets into that motion and he's focused. 
but yeah, that's another that's for another day. But going back to the Inus, I think you know they did everything um, that they could do with the um, with the riders they had, notably Yates and Bernal. The disappointing thing for me was you know Bernal. He came into the race. Um, you know, not in the best condition, but he got better as we as we see in the final number of days, and that is something you have to look into uh, with the team of Ineos as well. You know, where do you go after the Giro? What sort of a training program have you got? Where do you do your training? Do you go back to Colombia? Do you stay here in Europe and you know do the altitude training camps with the team with a number of other riders? Uh, you know, that's something I think you have to study as well and see can they improve uh, from that side. Mm. Well, that's what uh, Jumbo Visma do so well, isn't mm, it? Mm. Is you've got the likes of Tom Dumoulin in there, of course, Walt Van Aert, uh, Sepp Kuss, but they all know who their leader is. Whereas Ineos, um, they started the tour with three leaders this year. Got got Geraint Thomas, Theo Gegenhart, Richie Port, Carapaz. Burn, burn now it's 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 and i suppose that's the the downside of having too much money is they can afford all these people whereas a lot of other teams they know who the leader is and it's a very simple objective it's not working for any is it no. it's just not working as you say four leaders essentially coming into the tour de france and um, three leaders coming to the giro um it's not necessary either i'm not one to be criticizing team tactics but we were talking about this before um bradley a few days ago, whenever, you know, you were leading um, that team and you were the sole leader and whenever it became you and Chris co-leading, I remember being at that press conference and thinking, wow, this is radical. We've got mm. double leadership at Sky and now they're coming with double that again. Mm. Um, and it's all very well to say, we'll see how the road, you know, the road will decide and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is you're then you're taking on teams like Jumbo Visma who are entirely drilled behind one leader. And even when they're going for stage wins, they know who their GC leader is and they know what their overall focus is. And I just don't think you can really compete with that. I don't see how you can compete with that, because also if you've got co-leaders, they've got a they've got a co-leader or a leader mentality. They want to win at all costs. At what stage do you put your own ambitions aside and say, okay, that's my GC done now when you're a minute down, Mm. a minute and a half, two minutes. When do you say I'm riding in full support of my of my teammate now? Because we saw that with um, Bernal and Adam Yates as well. I never saw either of those two riding for each other. I didn't see Yates riding for anyone um, in any significant way. No one riding for him either. And we saw the two of them jumping around on on GC. Uh, would they have been better putting everything into Adam, for example? Egan Bernal has already won the Giro this year. Of course, he wanted um, to win all three Grand Tours. Um, but I and and he's obviously more of a, a proven candidate in that respect than Adam Yates. But it didn't work and you've got to look at when everything worked for them they kept going with it Mm. but when something isn't working clearly you've got to stop yeah Brad, we're sponsored by Zwift, the cycling app where fun is fast but also unlocks performance. I'm a big fan getting on there with the boys David and Stephen as you know yeah I've been exploring a few of the training plans oh yeah tell me about it well Training plans on Zwift help you improve every single time. I'm currently on board with G's training plan. Garrett Thomas, fun is flying uphill. I bet that's a tough one. It's not easy. This workout focuses on improving your muscular endurance, a pillar of any great time trialist like you, Brad, mountain climber or stage racer, to help you deal with hard surges and improve your ability to fly uphill. That's quite good, Graham. Is that, and do you find it's helping you improve? Helps you improve just because it's so easy to use. And if you want to find out just how simple that is, there's a special offer, a seven-day free trial. Find out more, download the app today. De Koenig Quickstep, 
Uh, Fabio Jakobsen, Sean, green jersey, three stage wins. He's had a remarkable 12 months, hasn't he? Yes, it's been an unbelievable recovery when you consider, you know, last year when he had that huge crash in Poland and, you know, we know the, um, you know, the injuries he had and, you know, we're, you know, getting updates on how he was uh, coming along and it was always promising. But to get back into the uh, professional peloton, uh, you know, you can do that after an accident, but get back to the top level and he's back at his top and we see the way he was winning those sprints uh, in this world and winning the green jersey. Uh, you know, it's just an amazing recovery and, you know, just a great story. And credit to Patrick Lefebvre as well, how he manages to find, continually find stars within the squad that can all win races right throughout the year. And again, they've won uh, not only with Jakobsen this race, they've of course won with um, Seneschal, mm. who was doing the lead out that day. But um, they're an amazing squad, aren't they? Um, really are, and on, on a very limited budget compared to the likes of Ineos. And, and there's an argument that that's, part of it you know they they win and bon- they earn their money on bonuses so if you win a stage if you win a jersey you get paid an awful lot more money and I guess it keeps the hunger sharp they also are a team that give opportunities um, and share them around but less so much I mean they sometimes do it in the classics don't they or have done in the past whereby they will they will come in with several potential leaders and see how the race goes that's easier to do in the classics and the grand tours but when it comes to the grand tours generally they're all behind one person or that maybe sometimes have a GC and a sprinter but to think that they won the green jersey at the Tour de France and the green jersey here and as you say um, want, picked up an extra stage win with Seneschal but when it comes to Fabio Jakobsen, the most interesting thing for me in the last three weeks was his reaction to Seneschal's win. Um, because I think sometimes we um, quite rightly hero worship, really, Fabio Jakobsen for what he's come back from. But you can then sort of sanitise his character and and put a veneer of niceness on it. There's no niceness when it comes to a sprint. You know, he was quite livid, really, that Seneschal had ditched him, gotten faster and, and dropped him from his wheel and taken the stage win. He, you know, in the aftermath later, he said, um, you know, tempers have cooled and, and I'm very happy for him and all the rest of it. But in that moment, you saw Fabio Jakobsen, the ruthless winner. And that's who he is. And that's why he's managed to come back the way he has. Do you think he can... Sp- come on from this now and be one of the world's best sprinters and challenge the likes of Caleb Ewan and the like in the Tour de France next year? Definitely. You know, we we know that uh, he's still a very young rider and mm. uh, he was just, you know, on the upward curve before his accident. And, uh, you know, that put doubt there for many months, for uh, certainly for me and I think for a lot of people. But now he's back and, you know, he's just coming into his prime and I think he's going to be one of the top sprinters, you know, in the professional peloton in the coming years. Well, we'll finish up with your, your moment of the welter. Orla, your... Oh, good question. Oh, I have to go to Sean first. I haven't, I've been watching it for the last three weeks every single day. <laughs> and I can't think what my moment of the welter is. Sean, you go first. Well, my moment was, I think, when Roglic went in the attack uh, over the top of that climb mm. and there was a 14-kilometre ascent. And when he started ascending, we could see him going into the car and there was... I was just holding my breath and I said, you know, he's going to you know, go on the tarmac and two or three cars later he was on the ground and uh, yeah, we know he, you know, he got out of it unsketched but uh, it could have been a disaster and you know, it could have been race over for him. So for mm. me, that was definitely the moment of the Vuelta. Uh, mine for me was probably seeing Romain Bardet win mm. um, just because I know him a little bit and um, I know how hard it's been for him having that sort of... French mantle on his shoulders of the next Bernardino or something when he when he first finished second in the Tour de France and of course won a few stages he had a few dry years after that and took the brave move to move out of France to DSM 
and he's had a, his first couple of wins in a couple of years. So I hope that um, it, it, it makes him move on to better things next year, bigger things. So have you thought of... Another? I have, I have. I've, I've always got a few. Um, I've loved every one of Magnus Court's wins. I think they've been really, really thrilling and exciting and, and so varied. But probably the moment for me would have been Fabio Jakobsen's first stage win. That was a real goosebumps moment. And as a fan of the sport, you watch that and think these are the kinds of stories that just blow you away and think, you know, what we witness and what we get to witness on a daily basis during a Grand Tour is nothing short of superhuman. Um, so that for me would, would have been my moment. Well, that's it. That draws the conclusion to the Bradley Wiggins show for the Vulture Spaniel for 2021. Rate us or berate us, do what you like, <laughs> but please do try and listen to us. Things, bigger things to come. We've got the World Championships in a couple of weeks' time and, of course, Paris-Roubaix, so lots more to come. And thank you to Orla. Thank you to Sean. Thank and you very don't much. don't forget we are sponsored by Zwift. We're funny fast, but slow is suffice. <laughs> you can't be bothered. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>